This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 7th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. How important has immigration been to America's global position? Tim Kaine in his new book, The Immigrant Superpower, How Brains, Brawn, and Bravery Make America Stronger, lays out his case for why immigration makes America great. The United States no longer has a president engaging in, at least on this subject, the subject of immigration, broad-scale sort of demagoguing the issue Uh, using immigrants as a uh, scapegoat for a lot of problems that the U.S. faces. Uh, And that president has been replaced by somebody who, as far as I can tell, would very much like to run away from this issue as much as possible. Uh, So in general, how do you rate the, the difference between the relative openness of a president, Donald Trump, and a president, Joe Biden? I, I wish I could say that President Biden was this pro-immigration president that, that I've been hoping for. In fact, we've seen some really disturbing trends. Um, the, pre, uh, the head of DHS, President Biden's appointee, Mayorkas, told Cubans that were coming across the water to Florida that there's never a good time to immigrate by sea, which seems a bizarre statement for a country that traces itself back to the Mayflower voyage. Um, they've, they've literally sent refugees back to Venezuela, to that horrible communist dictatorship, and uh, time will tell if they're going to embrace Ukrainian refugees. So on refugee policy, they're actually, the, the Biden presidency is not an improvement. We have seen some states uh, in the wake of this Ukraine situation, uh, governors like Jared Polis saying, if you've got Ukrainian refugees, we'll take them. And uh, that, of course, is is very promising, at least at the state level, to to signal a, a, an openness on individual states to uh, immigrants. Um, you know, it's not really uh, there, you know, state by state. It could be it could vary widely. There's uh, an analog to the Vietnamese refugees in the wake of uh, South Vietnam's collapse. And there were notably Democratic state governors in California said, we don't want any Vietnamese refugees. And it was the Republican governor of Washington that said, open arms, uh, send send them here. And and the um, presidency, I think it was Gerald Ford's presidency, said, all right, we'll we'll do that. Um, And it turned out to be great, um, one of my friends and a guy I feature in the book is France Hong. I, when I met France, I didn't know he was a Vietnamese refugee. I knew he was a West Point graduate who'd served in combat overseas and was part of the Bush White House legal team. Um, and he left that position to go back and fight again. He felt like he had more to give to his country in, in combat. Um, so when people think, gee, what, why, we want smart immigrants only, not refugees. You look at France Hong, top West Point grad, created many companies. So, and the governors do have a role to play. So it's great to hear those voices. Uh, and and I don't even know. You mentioned Governor Police. I'm a little bit disconnected. I don't know which party he's from, but you know what? More power to him. So uh, you know, you make made note of California and uh, Vietnamese immigrants. I'm r- reminded of sriracha. The uh, popular sauce that is almost ubiquitous in the United States today was largely popularized by one Vietnamese refugee. The name of his company, Hui Fong Foods, was the name of the boat he came over on. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Uh, so you, we talked about uh, President Biden and President Trump and their relative openness to immigration. You 
provide ratings for presidents uh, in this book. How do first of all, how do you get your your head around trying to evaluate the relative openness of presidents with regard to immigration? And second, who comes out on top? I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And my first approach, Caleb, was just to measure how many immigrants have arrived relative to the U.S. population at different points in time. And that turned out to be um, counterintuitive because you, there, there's a lag in the impact of policy. So one of the worst presidents in terms of openness is uh, President Kennedy and President Johnson, and Johnson in particular. But that's because they were following you know, that 30 to 40 year period of isolationism. They overturned it. So you have to give them credit for the policy shift. So we couldn't just go with the raw quantitative measure. We had to find a way to do ratings um, that would actually go back further than the quantitative data allow, back to Washington, for, for example. And I, I ask a lot of my friends and colleagues, I should say peers who are immigrant scholars, but they usually don't overlap with the knowledge of history that goes back you know, two centuries. But I did find uh, two individuals um, Alvin Felsenberg's one. He's written a great book about rating presidents. And I asked him blindly, you know, without knowing what I was going to use it for, on a scale of one to seven, rate the openness of uh, presidents. And I asked Tyler Anbinder, who wrote a great book on immigration that went all the way back to the beginning. And then I did my own, um, melded them together to come up with a score. And, um, we found a really surprising positive correlation between policy openness and those historic rankings you've heard about these pre to presidential greatness as measured by, say, C-SPAN. Wall Street Journal's done one, goes, goes back 50 years. Now, uh, I noticed there's a, a big disconnect here. I'm looking at your list right now between Woodrow Wilson and Warren G. Harding. Yeah, that's right. And, well, you, and I, so I, that's, I, a, that's, a massive, that's a massive change at a time when a huge inflow of immigrants were coming to the United States. And I assume that has to do with a public backlash against uh, these new arrivals or, or what was it? Well, the, the year 1920, or actually the year 1921 is a pivotal year in American history in turning isolationist. And that's also when Woodrow Wilson's presidency ended. He'd actually done a pocket veto of a bill that had passed Congress, this emergency quota legislation, putting, putting hard quotas on immigrants based on their ethnicity, where they were coming from. Um, and it was Harding who signed that into law. And then his successor, Coolidge, signed the 1924 Act that made it permanent. So it wasn't just an emergency act. And that that kicked off not just the quotas, but they set the quotas not at the current ethnic makeup of the U.S., but back to what they thought of as the golden Nordic era of uh, 1890. So they, you know, they didn't even set the clock fairly. And so this blocked Italians, this blocked Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe um, because they weren't considered, you know, truly white people. Um, and and there was this horrible uh, ethnic bias. Woodrow Wilson stands out as one of the heroes for resisting that. But actually, there'd been popular pressure to have sort of an immigration isolationism going back to the 1880s. You remember the Chinese Exclusion Act was what they limited uh, themselves to just limiting Asians. But eventually, it, it took on this uh, color of even Southern and Eastern Europeans. So broadly speaking, um, what do we know and what can we say with supreme confidence about the economic impact of immigration and what existing institutions matter most uh, to 
help us determine whether or not that inflow is going to be a net positive or a net negative? Okay, so two two questions here. Um, the institutions that matter most, I think, are assimilation institutions. We've we've had a uh, a great tradition of welcoming foreigners of every race, color, creed, and saying you are Americans as well. But learn the history, right? And so, and take an oath of um, allegiance to our constitution. Um, that's worked out really well. We, we One of the things we found in a uh, poll I did for the book, Caleb, is we assessed patriotic assimilation. And it turns out foreign-born Americans who are citizens give more patriotic responses to questions like, is the Constitution the best form of government? They, they give the most patriotic responses to numerous questions across the board. The only group of Americans not assimilating are teenagers. So, you know, we have our, we know where we have our work cut out and it's not with the assimilation program or the institutions of legal immigration um, that are working very well. Yeah. No one asked me to swear allegiance to the Constitution. No, no. I, I thought it was just, you know, military veterans like me. But, Caleb, I feel like I missed uh, something when the question you asked and I because it was a two part. Well, yeah. What you know, how do you said institutions of assimilation are very important for helping us decide whether a large inflow of immigrants will be a net positive or net negative. But, uh, you know, an average person who works and has no particular opinion about uh, whether or not immigrants will be beneficial or not beneficial right. to his standard of living, to his ability to find work, that sort of thing. What what are the things that he ought to be thinking about in terms of deciding as a policy matter, immigration is good or immigration right. is bad? So when I set about writing this book, The Immigrant Superpower, I wanted to write something that wasn't stuck in that tired debate, you know, do immigrants steal jobs or do they add value? It's, it, even though I'm an economist, I'm also a military veteran. So I wrote about superpower status. But one way I realized that we have sort of dodged the debate as economists is we only talk about microeconomics. And that tends to focus on just the immediate term. So yeah, if there's an influx of uh, Ukrainian scientists that might affect the market for scientists in the United States. But research has shown it's a net positive for all income classes, regardless of what types of immigrants come in after a transition period. And we're talking two to three years. What's left off the table in this conversation is what about macroeconomics? What about GDP? Because when we're talking about superpower rivalry, the size of your GDP and your productivity, your income per capita, those are the two factors that matter. And even the most critical, um, you might say, restrictionists, uh, it just say up front, oh, yeah, of course, it's not even a debate. So because you have 100% of economists agree that the more agreements that, that join the United States, the stronger our macro economy is, it, it doesn't get nearly the attention that it deserves. And I try to put it front and center. Let's do some analysis of how weak we would have been right without without that uh, ending the um the isolationism in 1965 what if we hadn't even had an immigration wave caleb back in 1820 and rufus king who ran for president had been successful in keeping out all the dirty irish catholics because that's what they were worried about then well our our country wouldn't have been any bigger than nazi germany in world war ii there's no way we fight in the pacific we probably don't even fight you know in, in europe we're just too small instead thankfully you know, the wisdom of the founding fathers was, you know, bring in as many immigrants as possible who are going to patriotically assimilate 
to uh, to strengthen the United States. Robert Zubrin at uh, National Review writes an article, uh, Drain Putin's Brains. He's hmm. talking about uh, this in the context of the Ukraine crisis that, that's going on right now and basically inviting all of the technical talent that Russia has to offer and saying, come on over, guys. We'd rather you be working here than there. Well, I think that's brilliant. That's it. I saw that piece and I was a little jealous. You know, I have to understand this is exactly the argument that I I wanted to make myself, but I couldn't be prouder to see it show up in the National Review. And really, I've had this conversation with a lot of conservative friends who aren't libertarian. Uh, I consider myself libertarian, and they they want to they want to focus on America first. They want America to be strong. They want to win against China. And I'm like, okay, let's just stop right there. You want to win against China, or in this case, Russia. I mean, we know China is trying to hack our technology and and get into our IP systems and and steal as many secrets as they can. You know, let them steal ideas if we can steal their brains. I would call that a fair trade. So let's. You know, we already have millions, literally, of foreign students in our graduate schools and our getting PhD programs in engineering and science. And U.S. policy now says the day they graduate, they have to leave. Get out. We need to flip that around and say, you know, you have a green card stapled to your diploma. Here's the crazy thing, Caleb. That's got bipartisan support, and it has for 20 years, yet it's not policy. So something tells me the politicians would rather fight about this issue than actually solve it. You talked about a little bit about what economists miss when uh, evaluating the impacts of immigration on either the United States or any country that is uh, pondering some sort of policy change. But it seems to me that at least within the context of the U.S., immigrants are uh, coming to the U.S. either, for the most part, to work or to escape something much worse. Uh, and some, and sometimes it's a combination of both. Uh, to the extent that immigrants are coming to the U.S. for a specific uh, employment purpose, for opportunity, they're self-selecting, right? This is a self-selecting group. Do economists miss that? No, there's a great recognition that immigrants um, are entrepreneurial by nature. They're risk-taking. It's why we see their their rate after they've gotten into the United States and become citizens. Their rate of forming new companies is higher. Um, their rate of winning Nobel Prizes is, is higher. Their rate of patriotic responses to survey questions is higher. They tend to be you know, what you'd like to think of as your your ideal American, you know, and, and these are people that also, I, I love to point this out in the book, they believe in racial equality. They don't like the bean counting um, racial grievance agenda of the CRT folks. They still believe in the American dream, even if the New York Times doesn't. So, you know, I think re if Republicans would be wise to welcome, if you want patriotic uh, folks who believe in radical equality um, and, and not... Uh, affirmative action, you, you couldn't do better than, you know, a poor Somali kid um, or a family from Afghanistan. So to the politics of all of this, which is how things get done for better and worse often, um, you just said all these great things about what we know about immigrants, about patriotism, about uh, bootstrapping, about starting new businesses, about uh, all you know. Sometimes they are, they are they tend to be culturally uh, conservative. So why is why is it o almost all Republicans that I see in public 
expressing such skepticism about immigration? Well, it's the shock to me when I looked into this issue to find that um, Republicans in responding to the Gallup poll, Gallup's been asking an immigration question since the 1970s, at least on an annual basis. And it goes something like, do you think the United States should welcome more immigrants, keep the same uh, amount or fewer? And it used to be Democrats and Republicans both had wanted things to stay the same. The national support for greater immigration was at about 7%. And, you know, the decline portion was maybe a third of respondents. What we found is an increase in both Republicans and Democrats who say we should increase and a reduction in both parties who want fewer. It's just that in the last 40 years, Democrats have gone to the extreme where they won't make a distinction between legal and illegal. Among Republican and independent voters, there's support for greater legal immigration than ever before. Um, there is some concern about um, illegal immigration that's that's risen. But even Democrats, you see, worry about job-stealing immigrants. So, you know, it's it's not universal. And it's worth remembering sometimes, it was Joe Biden who didn't want Vietnamese refugees welcomed, right? There, There is this union left concern. Even Bernie Sanders was corrected famously by Ezra Klein during a during an interview uh, about immigration because Bernie Sanders was like, oh, it's a Coke conspiracy that wants to welcome all these immigrants here. And Klein's like, well, well, wait a minute. That's not the that's not what you're supposed to be saying as a Democratic candidate. So, you know, I'd say we're at risk, Caleb, a little bit of populism. And it's populism on both sides, this notion of foreigners stealing jobs. It's sort of a constant in human history. But the Gallup polls show you and I can get misled a little bit by what is covered in the news that goes to that right winger who's like, oh, they're stealing jobs. Because most Republicans don't think that way. Most Republicans recognize the virtue and the strength of legal immigration. And that's really th that debate is lost a little bit because the media focuses so much on the illegal border you know, chaos. Where have we seen examples of large inflows of immigrants uh, where we can say with confidence that it was a net negative. Well, I th this cuts two ways because every immigrant is going and leaving. Um, there's been a big political shift in California, but it's not coming from foreigners who are coming into California and voting for the Democratic Party. It's Republicans who are living here and leaving. That's what's really caused a radical shift in the politics of California and made it a supermajority blue state. Um, I recently visited Texas and talked to some friends there, very Republican friends. And they were, you know, they, they, they joke about, oh, we don't want all these Californians coming. They're going to make us, you know, liberal. It's not the liberal Californians that are going to Texas. It's conservative Californians that have said enough is enough. We care about tax rates. We care about freedom. We care about gun rights. Um, so there's a study done uh, out of the University of Maryland going back decades that shows the partisan split between interstate immigrants inside the U.S. is about two to one. Republicans tend to move. They're sensitive to policy. Democrats tend to stay. And that's why you see cities like Detroit, which think has been cut in absolute size and raw numbers in my lifetime, it's become an extremely democratic city and it wasn't all that always that way. The Republicans left, sometimes to the other side of Michigan, sometimes to other states. 
But the, the example that comes to mind to answer your question on an international level is Argentina. Um, used to be the richest country or one of the richest countries in the world um, is now a sort of a permanent basket case, sadly. And they had an influx of very socialist-minded Europeans, Italians, who were anarchists and socialists, and it really upended um, the balance of politics in Argentina. That doesn't seem to have been a problem in the U.S. That is to say, immigrants coming from other countries to the U.S., seem to recognize something about the U.S. That's, that tells them, I want to be there. These are values I share. Let's go. Yeah, it's, it's worth digging deeper into the Argentina story. And this is not um, a, a Reason magazine take or it's not, uh, you know, some other. Th this is in popular histories of Argentina, their own history. Um, which embraced Peronism, said, thank God for all these, you know, foreigners who came in and, and helped fix our, our broken politics. So now it's not so much celebrated because Argentina can't seem to escape its problems. So what made America different, I think, was that notion of assimilation, um, taking an oath to the Constitution, getting some basic education in these core values. And, um, I think it's we've attracted a different kind of immigrant as well, being, um, I mean, America, especially now, is known around the world as a place for the American dream and cowboy capitalism. I think a lot of foreigners come here and are, are surprised, frankly, at, uh, wow, the taxes are kind of high. The welfare state's sort of big here. But the big thing that makes us different, Caleb, and we haven't talked about it, all European countries have a bias toward a transactional view of immigration, an economic view, right? So they're employment-based visas. Our legal immigrant visas are roughly 70% family-oriented, family reunification, to, to such an extreme that President George Bush Sr. back in 1990 said, there are a lot of countries that are left out of this because they don't have any family roots. So let's create a diversity lottery visa um, that I think I, it's under attack from a lot of people. I make a point in this book to say, has there ever been a country in history that was so popular that so many people wanted to move there? They had to have a lottery. And these are some of the most patriotic immigrants we have. So our family basis means we get a much um, healthier, smoother assimilation process than Argentina certainly had. So um, going forward, I guess, how do you see the politics of this moving forward? Because uh, during the Trump years, Democrats suddenly found themselves the most pro-trade, pro-immigrant group of people, uh, perhaps in uh, Democratic Party history, at least according to, to polling data. And that was largely, I think, a reaction to uh, President Trump. Uh, Joe Biden hasn't done much and, in fact, is uh, as you as you note, has made a few things worse in terms of uh, immigration. It seems like we're go we're moving in the wrong direction, and perhaps calcifying policy at a point that uh, you and I might not like at all. So I see some I see some great opportunities in the future, Caleb, and I see some risks. Um, so these are all probabilities. The biggest risk is there is a populist movement um, that sort of caught fire in both parties. Just look at the tolerance for political violence. It used to be one out of 20 
people in America thought there was ever an excuse for political violence. Now it's more like one out of three, and that's in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And that populism tends to verge very quickly into um, hostility toward foreign trade, toward immigration. Now, right now, I feel like it's tamped down, and I'm still more optimistic just because some of the Gallup polling shows people make a distinction between legal immigration and illegal. But I do worry about that that backlash. So my prediction is this. Um, even if Trump declares himself a candidate, and even if Donald Trump got himself reelected, fact is, uh, Stephen Miller lost more internal White House battles than he won. Um, they did a lot of executive actions, you know, around the edges. But even when President Trump proposed a new piece of legislation, and I, I chastised the media for you know poo-pooing it, it kept legal immigration at the same level that George Bush did, higher than Ronald Reagan did and higher than LBJ. One million legal immigrant visas per year. He wanted to shift it more toward a uh, employment basis, merit basis, they call it, instead of family. You know, and the legislation failed. And it wasn't comprehensive. It wasn't trying to solve everything under the sun. So I think the future is going to be less comprehensive, more focused. But I think we'll see that American confidence in legal immigration is probably going to be unshakable and resist the populist moment that we're in. Tim Kaine is author of The Immigrant Superpower, How Brains, Brawn, and Bravery Make America Stronger. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.